Listen now to God's holy and inerrant word taken from Isaiah 57, 1 through 5, and 14 through 19, which is printed on the insert of your bulletin. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near sons of sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. God of mercy, we come worshiping you as the God who supplies and meets all of our needs. And so we now return to you a portion of what has come to us through your hands, these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings, and we ask that you would use them in a mighty way in this world in order that your kingdom would be revealed here and throughout the world in order that the good news of the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. And Father, as we prepare to come now before your word, we We do plead with you by your mercy that you would make this same gospel that we long to go out into all the nations, that you would make it clear to us this morning, that you would meet each of us where we are, that you would remind us that because because all our debts were cast on Jesus, we are free. We are free as people who are simultaneously both far more broken than we could imagine, but also far more deeply loved and accepted and secure because of the mercy of Jesus' blood, which cries out for us. So we pray this morning that you would help us with the eyes of faith to see our Lord and Savior, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And children... Ages three to six are dismissed to Children's Church, so you can make your way to the back of the sanctuary and you'll be taken to Children's Church. Well, we took a few weeks off, um, but last week we got back to our series that we've been in 
this summer, which is a series through portions of the latter part of Isaiah's prophecy, which I've been calling uh, this series The Servant and the Hope. Because you see, Isaiah tells us, and we've seen this, he tells us about this mysterious servant figure. This mysterious ser- servant figure who is going to come and redeem the whole world. And the New Testament writers tell us that Jesus is this servant that Isaiah spoke of. And so we've been really studying Jesus through the lens of Isaiah, uh, from the book of Isaiah, who he is and what he came to do. And Isaiah chapter 57, I think, gives us a very robust, very rich view of the hope that Jesus has come to bring us in the midst of our darkness and our brokenness. Um, I want to talk to you for a moment about our imaginations. Our, you know, our imaginations are very, very powerful, um, and, and they're always at work, right? We use our imaginations all the time to interpret our experiences, right? Uh, they, they, our imaginations are really what adds color to our experiences, past, present, and future, right? We use our imaginations to dream about the future, to envision possibilities to come, right? Um, every time you plan anything, you're using your imagination, right? Um, I thought about this this morning because I, I'm wearing my glasses because my contacts were bothering me so bad, badly. But, you know, what cursed Lois Lane, really, was that she had no imagination, right? How could she, how could she not tell that that was Superman with the glasses on, right? Um, she had no imagination to see what was right before her, right? Um, you know, we could go on and on. You know, if you think about it, our imaginations really can employ all of our senses, right? Um, it's really by imagination that we can imagine tastes and smells and sounds and the sensation of touch, um, even our emotions. You know, we can imagine what things feel like. And often when you and I hear the word imagination, unfortunately, we think make-believe, right? Um, But I want to encourage you to exercise your imagination this morning really in order to see what is real but unseen, Eugene Peterson, he once wrote, When I look at a tree, most of what I see, I do not see at all. I see a root system beneath the surface, sending tendrils through the soil, sucking up nutrients out of the loam. I see the light pouring energy into the leaves. I see the fruit that will appear in a few months. I stare and stare and see the bare branches austere in the next winter's snow and wind. And this is what he says. I see all of that. I really do. I'm not making it up, but I could not photograph it. I see it by means of my imagination. See, Isaiah 57 comes to us and challenges us to use our imaginations and to see what's unseen. Uh, If you notice how Isaiah 57 begins, right, this is a world where Not only the wicked suffer and die, but also the righteous, also the devout, those who love God and love others, they die. And it says, no one ponders it. No one understands it. 
No one, in other words, sees beyond the suffering and the death to what it means, right? It it takes the imagination to see the end of verse 1, really, that God is actually saving His people from a greater calamity, a greater suffering, a greater trouble. It takes imagination to see that God ushers His people into peace and into rest through death. See, Isaiah is challenging us in this chapter to use our imaginations and to really fuel our imaginations by the truth of God's Word in order that we can see, in order that we would find hope in the midst of brokenness and in the midst of darkness. So here's where I want us to go this morning. I want you to exercise your imagination this morning through these three points. The unlikely friends of God in Isaiah 57, the undying dream of God, and finally, the unshakable foundation of God's peace. So first, the unlikely friends of God. You know, the default mode of our hearts is really to work off of and to work from our resumes. And if I can just explain that to you for for a moment, you know, default, that's when your TV or your DVD, I almost said VCR, nobody has one of those anymore. Um, Your DVD player or your computer, they go back to their factory settings, right? I'm sorry about all, I don't know what's going on with all this scratchy noise, but bear with me. Um, What I'm saying is that our default mode, our default mode is to work off our resumes. And this is how resumes work, right? Our resumes are a list of what's very easy to see, right? They're a list of what we've done. Here are my accomplishments, right? Here, here's what I've achieved. Here's my record of performance. Here's my pedigree, right? And here's how we work off those resumes. We build our identities. We, build, we shape our confidence off of our resumes, and we reason within our hearts from what we see, right? And so we think God should love me. He should bless me. He should take care of me through this trouble. Why? Because we say, well, just look at my resume. Look at my obedience. Look at my sacrifice. Look at my sincerity, my moral performance. At least I'm not like those people. God should take care of me. It's the default mode of our hearts to reason from and to work off our resumes. And by the way, it it works the opposite way too, right? Uh, God must be disappointed with me. He must be ashamed of me, deeply ashamed of me, angry with me, disappointed with me. Why? Because, well, look at my resume. All of my failures, all of my shortcomings, all of my weaknesses, all of my hypocrisy, and on and on. The default mode of your heart and mine is to work off our resumes of what we can see. So, so listen, it's very shocking in Isaiah 57. It's it's really counterintuitive in Isaiah 57 that the one in verse 15 who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, all right, try to wrap your mind around that one. It's counterintuitive that the one who is holy and the one who naturally dwells in the high and holy place would also dwell with the contrite and the lowly, right? 
dwell. I, I know we don't, we don't use that word very often. Um, but it's, this is saying God, he is at home with the contrite. He is at home with the lowly. He is, the high and lifted up is comfortable with those who are broken and those who are heavily burdened. The Holy One who inhabits eternity, He is drawn to, Isaiah is telling us. He is attracted to those who have pitiful resumes, the contrite and the lowly. He is working against the default settings of our hearts, right? The, the word contrite is actually the Hebrew word for crushed elsewhere, right? God draws near those who are crushed and those who are burdened with their problems, those who are broken by life circumstances. And the lowly really are, what's being described here is really those who are marked by, not by how well they stand out from the pack or the crowd, right? But they are the least of all, right? They are servants. They are utterly unself-centered, right, and unself-promoting. And these are the unlikely friends of God. These are the people you and I normally would write off and forget. And they often are forgotten by everyone else. But to these, God is drawn. He is at home with these. He's attracted to these. Listen, the scribes and the Pharisees in the Gospels, they had so much trouble with Jesus, didn't they? He kept surrounding himself with the moral outcasts, the failures, the, the sinners of his day, right? He hung out with all the wrong people, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the failures, the broken, the oppressed, the afflicted, the sinful. He partied with them, right? He, he was always eating and drinking with them, right? And the scribes and the Pharisees kept saying, you remember, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. The unlikely friends of God, the unlikely friends of Jesus. One of my favorite stories that I've told a number of times, and you may remember it, is about a preacher who found himself at a diner in the early hours one morning, three o'clock in the morning, he was, he was there uh, in this diner when a group of prostitutes came in to the diner. Three prostitutes walked in, and he overheard some of their conversation, and one of these prostitutes was saying, you know, tomorrow is my birthday. And he sat there, and he watched, and he listened to how the other two made fun of her for, telling, for sharing that information with them. You know, who, why, why would you think we care? You're nothing but a prostitute, right? And after they left, the preacher asked the cook, he called the cook aside, and he asked if these prostitutes were regulars in the diner, and the cook said, yes, they come in here every, every morning, three o'clock in the morning like clockwork. And so the preacher said, well, tomorrow I want us to throw a birthday party for her. And so the cook agreed to bake a cake for them, and the preacher went out and he got all the, the decorations and everything, and so it got to three o'clock in the morning, and it was wall-to-wall prostitutes and a cook and a preacher 
which really, it's a prostitute, a cook, and a preacher were in a diner. It sounds like a joke, but, uh, but it wasn't. Um, and so when she walked in, right, everybody sang happy birthday to this, this woman. And she was just overwhelmed. And she burst into tears and weeping, and the room got silent, um, right? It, it, this awkward silence fell over the diner. And so the preacher, nervous and unsure of what to do, which, you know, a lot of times when preachers get that way, they just talk because um, that's what they do, you know. So he said, well, let's pray. And he led this, you know, the cook and the prostitutes in this prayer. And after the prayer, the cook pulled him aside and he said, hey, you, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. You know, what kind of church do you belong to? And this, this is what the preacher said. He very correctly replied, I belong to the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 o'clock in the morning. I, I love that story for many reasons. And chief among them is that it is a story of imagination that is fueled by truth, right? Because he saw a God who draws near and is attracted to the contrite and the lowly, the broken. He saw a God with unlikely friends who were trophies of his grace. He saw beauty. He saw love. He saw grace where no one who is working off a resume would ever be able to see it. And so I'm asking you today, if you can see these things for yourself and for others too, is your imagination being shaped and fueled by the truth? Because this means that if you, have, if you have absolutely blown it this past week, there is every reason for you to hope, right? It means that if you are crushed by the weight of your brokenness and of the world, you have very good reason to hope. You can never be too far gone to be out of the reach of the God of Psalm 113, who we, we are told delights to reach into the ash heap and into the dust of the earth, and to crown his trophies of grace. But it also means this. If you can begin to rightly imagine God like this, then how dare, how dare you be arrogant to see someone or a group of people as beneath you? If we see God like this, turning our resume building upside down, then we should be gravitating. We should be moving towards the kinds of people he moves towards. The contacts in your phone should be full of very unlikely friends. Our calendars should be full of time spent with the broken and the lowly that we would be attracted and drawn to the same kinds of people Jesus is drawn to. Now, second, I, I want you to continue with me. I want you to think with me about the undying dream of God. Your imagination, I'm saying in the second point, needs to be shaped by seeing this undying dream of God. Um, what I'm calling this dream of God, it's actually pretty simple, and it's there on God's lips in verse 19, where he says, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. 
Here it is. God's dream is a renewed, healed, and entirely restored world. Right? It's a world of flourishing, worldwide peace. Of worldwide, unbroken peace. Right? That is superlative in kind. And total in its extent, as one author puts it. The Hebrew word there for peace is shalom, and some of you know that word, but the Hebrew understanding of shalom, it's not just an end to enmity, right? That kind of peace. It is a total wholeness, a total fullness, a total restoration, a total satisfaction that's in view. It is everything that your heart is aching for in this broken world and more. But listen, here's the deal. The first part of Isaiah 57, it is a pretty bleak picture, right? It's about as far away as you can get, right, from shalom. I mean, the righteous and those who love God, they are dying, and no one ponders it. No one even gives it a second thought as they go down to death. Who, who is pictured in verses 3, three to 4 here? Sons of the sorceress and offspring of the adulterer, right? He's got in mind the perversion of the people, the twistedness, the corruption, and the wickedness. And then verse 5, it's really a description of people in worship of two distinct Canaanite idolatries, right? The fertility cult, which is symbolized by the green tree here and which was expressed in orgiastic rites, and the cult of Moloch, which demanded child sacrifice. See, what he's saying is this bleak picture of a world very dark, very broken, very corrupt and wicked, and the world you and I inhabit is no less dark, no less broken, we might say. And it will take your imagination to see through this brokenness But God is clearly saying in the second half of Isaiah 57 that his dream, he will not let it fall to the ground. It will not die, right? His is an undying dream. He is on a mission to renew the world and set everything right. No one understands the sudden death of the righteous or ponders it, but by imagination that is fueled and shaped by the truth of God's undying dream, you begin to see differently, right? That death was a way to spare his people from an even greater trouble, which is what it says in verse 1, at the end of verse 1, that, the death, for, that death for his people is to enter into what? Shalom, peace, to find true, fulfilling, and restorative rest. It, it, here's, it takes a determined, robust imagination to see what is real, but is often unseen. Joseph Epstein, he's considered by many to be um, one of the greatest English essayists, right? And he's he's a brilliant writer, uh, very vivid, just amazing insights, and an ability to communicate that I think is very difficult to match. And he wrote this years ago. He wrote, Were I to total up all the books I have read in 30 or so years as an adult— Novels might or might not outnumber other kinds, history, philosophy, social science, belles lettres, but more than those others taken together, novels, I feel, have been the most decisive in forming my character. 
They have been decisive in giving me a method or style of thinking, a general point of view, and a goodly portion of such understanding as I may have of the world. And this is what he's saying. He's saying that it's stories. He's saying it's stories that really pull you inside. Right? It's stories that are told that work on your imagination. It's stories that fuel your imagination, that have formed, he says, his character, that has taught him how to think, that has developed his point of view, and has shaped how he sees the world. He says in that same essay, you know, I think something that most of us understand, that you are what you read. Now listen, the Bible, right, this book here, this is the story of God, right? It's a story that pulls you inside and shapes and fuels your imagination. It, because this story of God, it is, his story is to take a shattered, broken, and fallen world, warped and twisted by sin, and to redeem it and to renew it through a hero, his own son. And this is why the best writers that you will ever read, they all know how to tell stories and they know how to use metaphor. Lewis and Tolkien and Chesterton and Peterson, who I quoted earlier, and many others, right? They talk about God's undying dream where every rock and every blade of grass will one day be heavier and fuller and more meaningful. They talk about his undying dream to restore the world and build the home you've always longed for in this life but have never had. I mean, what are they doing? They're telling stories and they're using metaphor and they are firing our imaginations with the truth to let you reach out. And by the imagination, touch and see the beauty and truth of what God is doing in the world. Now listen, when you see and find your hope in the undying dream of God, what happens? God says it begins to become your dream too. And you begin to dream of a world where injustice is put right, and where severed relationships are made whole, and where true beauty is always celebrated. And what you do is you start working for that dream, and you start striving for it, and you start raising children who are shaped by that dream, and you start to pattern your marriage after that dream, and you start using your career in medicine or in banking or in being a lawyer or whatever it is to push against the darkness and to bring shalom here and now. Your world in your dream is far too small if all you're working for is a paycheck and a summer home. That's not to see at all. Listen, when your dream has become aligned with the undying dream of God, what you see happening on the news in places like Charleston, South Carolina, it breaks your heart. It moves you to act. It moves you to work against anything and everything that, that threatens the shalom that God intends to bring. In other words, this dream is not realized in your sleep. It is realized when you're awake and when you take action upon the broken world around you. When you get involved to fight injustice and mend brokenness and work against poverty cycles to bring healing to the hurting and on and on, all of your relationships shaped and formed by this dream of peace. And I'm asking you this morning in the second point, if your dream and if your imagination is being shaped 
by what God envisions for the future of his people and for the world. All right, finally, the unshakable foundation of God's peace. So you got God's unlikely friends, you have God's undying dream of peace, and then finally, the unshakable foundation for this peace. Now, let's first get a taste of the pressing reality of our brokenness that's here. If you look at verse 17, you see, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. And this is, in fact, just what I mentioned a moment ago. Earning a lot of material wealth to spend on yourself. That's what's in view here. That's the unjust gain that God is talking about here. But we also have to think back to not only this form of idolatry in our lives, but every other form of idolatry. The whole of the first part of Isaiah 57 with child sacrifice, with these sexual cults, right? Um, But even more, and I should have included it, but in verse 13 of Isaiah 57, God says this, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. Your collection of idols, right? Not one idol, but we have a collection of idols. Greed and sex and the approval of others and achievement and career and family and comfort and romance. And you name it, right? What are we looking for in all of these idols? We are looking for salvation. If we can just get this or that, we'll be able to turn our world into a world of peace even if it's your own individual world, right? If I can just get this or that, then I'll know I have value. If I can just have this, then I'll know my life is meaningful and significant and important. That's us. And then you come back to verse 17, and you see that we find ourselves, and God sees us backsliding into our idolatry with alarming regularity. And God was angry. Verse 17 you notice how fast things turn? Verse 18. Listen to these beautiful words of God. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. See, he's not ignoring your brokenness or mine, but he is determined to heal. He sees your brokenness, but he is determined to heal. One author writes about verses 17 and 18. He says this, Suddenly, all is different. A new edict goes out from the Lord, not because man has changed his ways. His ways still go on. Not because the Lord has decided to overlook sin. I have seen. But for a reason undeclared, something that is true in the heart of God and true to the nature of God, Smiting has turned to healing. And here's the question for us. What is this undeclared reason that this author points out that leads to God's healing, to restoring comfort to his broken people? Or or you put it this way. What is the undeclared foundation of God's peace that you and I desperately need to see? It's hard to see this in the English, and um, it's why I pointed it out earlier. But there is, even though the reason may not, may not be declared in Isaiah 57, there is a clear hint to it, right? Because back in verse 15, the word we see translated contrite, we said, is the Hebrew word for crushed. And if you were reading through Isaiah's prophecy, you know the last time 
you would have come across that word, that Hebrew word. It was in Isaiah 53. It was used of this mysterious servant figure in Isaiah. And here's what it said. Surely this servant figure has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed, there's that word, for our iniquities. The foundation of God's peace is in the person and work of Jesus. He came to be in your place, to live the life you could not live for you, and to be crushed with the death that should have crushed you and me. And listen, if you can imagine that, if you can see that, and if you can take that deep into your heart, it really does change everything. This is the story. The Bible is the story of a hero who came to conquer death through death, to undo brokenness by himself being broken for you, to bring unshakable peace by being shaken to the very core and cut off from the face of his father. You know, you just think about how the unshakable foundation of God's peace will change you when your imagination is fueled by this truth. It will change how you see and how you handle all your successes in life. Because it's when you realize that you are saved by grace that all those things that used to puff you up and make you proud and, and arrogant, they no longer have the power to puff you up. Because your imagination is what allows you to see that grace always kills arrogance and pride. And if you profess to be a Christian and you find yourself being condescending to others and hanging out with the pretty people and ign- while you ignore the broken and feeling that you got where you were through your hard work and not through God's grace, then you need to come back to this story of a hero who saves by grace and by grace alone. And that has to fuel your imagination and kill your pride and your arrogance. It changes the way you see all your successes. And at the same time, this unshakable foundation of God's peace, it changes the way you see and handle all your failures, doesn't it? Because it's a message that says you have been saved by grace, right? When you're working off your resume, all your failures are crushing blows to you, and they sink you into despair. And when you're working off your resume, failure sends you spiraling in a descending shame cycle. It's your imagination that allows you to see that being saved by grace means your failures and your shortcomings and your weakness and your hypocrisy, they no longer define you. They are no longer your identity. You are defined by something else. See, if you profess to be a Christian and you find yourself in this shame spiral, hiding your failures, crushed by guilt, then you need to come back to the story of a hero who was crushed to save you and to let that fuel your imagination. See, here's what I'm saying here. Isaiah 57, it challenges you to use your imagination and to abandon every form of linear thinking that you have come to depend upon. 
A linear view goes like this. If I'm bad, things go badly. And if I'm bad, God doesn't love me. And if I'm good, God must love me, and things will go well. And Isaiah 57 challenges that. When the gospel gets a hold of your imagination, you begin to see a God who makes his people great through suffering and who delivers them through even death. When the gospel gets a hold of your imagination, you begin to see a God who turns your resume building upside down. You see a God who is all the time working resurrection through death. The last thing I want to say about how the unshakable foundation of God's peace changes you, and there are many other ways, but I want to leave you with this. If your imagination is fueled by truth, then you need to find a new dream. I, mean, I mentioned this in the last point, but if this story is changing how you see things, then your dreams need to change. Because God's story says that the sure way to miss a life of greatness is to live for yourself. To spend all your money on you, to build a comfortable life for yourself, to isolate yourself away from broken, brokenness and from messiness, to live to get rather than to give is a sure way to miss greatness in God's story. This story fueling your imagination says to you that greatness, it is always found through death. It is always found in sacrifice It is always found through giving instead of getting. It is always found through dying to yourself. If you read through the Gospels, you know that the moment of Jesus' glory is when he is hung upon a cross. The moment of his glory is when he's giving himself up for you. And the way to find glory in this life is to give yourself up for him and for others. And if you haven't figured it out, you know, to talk about imagination is another way to talk about faith, the ability to see things that are real but unseen. By faith, can you see the unlikely friends of God? Can you see by faith his undying dream for the world and for you? And can you see the unshakable foundation of his peace through Jesus? If you can, you will find hope in the midst of darkness, in the midst of brokenness, and it will change you forever. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for giving us your word. Because your word tells us the way things really are. Your word forces us to use our imaginations, to see what is unseen but real. And we pray that you allow us to see your grace that is real and true, your justice that is real and true. Father, we pray that we would see that you are the kind of God who is at home high and lifted up, but also at home with the broken and the lowly. And Father, how we thank you for your undying dream, for your intentions to rebuild this world, to renew us and it, and give us the peace we have always longed for. Father, we pray that we would see that your undying dream is realized through the person and work of Jesus. Father, fuel our imaginations with truth that we might be a people 
who are seeing, who are seeing the way things really are, and who are shaped by your story. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.